welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. Hello, fellow anarchists. On today's episode, we are joined by the therapist Jason Best, who enjoys working with LGBTQIAA individuals, poly people, nerds, kinksters, gamers, and trauma survivors. Together, we talk about spicy childhoods, the superpowers of trauma, and discussing sex in therapy. I feel like one of the biggest things I'm taking away from this conversation is is exactly the title, right? That when these things happen in our life, these traumas, atrocities, other pieces, that is not the end of our story. We get to keep going, we get to learn, we get to integrate these lessons and decide how we want to move forward. And I love that Jason talked about, yeah, the superpowers of trauma. What, I mean, you'd never want to go through it, but when you do, what are some of the beautiful things that come out of that process? And I think his story is such a great example of leaning into to his authentic passion and letting that path guide him and then seeing all the beautiful results of trusting in that and the amazing practice that he has now. So y'all, tune in. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How did you get into this work specifically? I am a, a kinky, perverted weirdo, so that really helped. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so part of, I mean, do you want to jump into like my personal journey? Into... Hell yeah. This is, yeah, this is usually where I like to Great. direct towards you. Yeah. It's your yeah, yeah. story. Yeah. So, so I had a, a spicy childhood, so that always helps, you know, definitely, you know, was dealing with my parents having, you know, being from a very, very impoverished area. We were in mm. a super small town in Kentucky. There was very, very little in the way of social safety nets and supports. You know, my mother had me when she was 19. There was a lot of abuse going mm. on with my father. Mm. Fast forward, she also had a raging drug addiction. So I was I was ultimately wow. raised by my grandparents. Who And then my grandmother died when I was 10. I went back to live with my mom. Wow. Uh, wow. So there was this like Oh my god. good solid like I mean my grandmother was amazing and loving and wonderful. But obviously going back from having like the super spicy early childhood to <sighs> you know, I mean with crazy crazy abuse and everything like um mm. like one of the things my my father had done which I I don't normally disclose but it feels like whatever. Sure. Sure, um, sure. was uh he had driven my mother when she was pregnant, he was, let's just say, ambivalent about having a kid. So he drove her when she was pregnant in February out into like country roads and would just leave her, like hoping that the stress would cause a problem or, you know, uh, oh when, that kind of stuff. So just like wow. awful. So yes. 
going back to live with her, she was still in a mess. She was with a different partner, also abusive. Things were still like ugly. Oof. So I was really, really very depressed going into uh, high school. She eventually left the abusive partner, got f- into a relationship with someone who was more stable. Mm-hmm. It took a couple of years, but she got cleanish. You know, she was off the heavier stuff, the big, the things sure. that were causing massive problems. And during that time, though, I got adopted by essentially some really, really wonderful teachers. Like there were some teachers that really like took me under their wing and went to bat mm-hmm. for me, and you know, like mm-hmm. kind of um, made a special effort. And that really helped. And then I, I kind of flourished academically. I ended up getting a, a scholarship, going to school you know, having to kind of figure my shit out at school. And I did some courses of therapy at school. And there was a really, there was a therapist I first worked with who, who said something like, you'll never get over all the terrible things that have happened to you. And I think his goal was to say that. And then eventually, but you know, we can be resilient, except that he never, he never said that in a way that landed. So all I heard (laughs) is like, well, you're broken. You're broken. But then the follow-up therapist, <laughs> so obviously I was still depressed after that. Uh, yeah. The follow-up therapist, though, was like, well, I think he maybe meant something. And then, like, you know, kind of gave, installed Jesus. more hope, yeah. right? Sure, sure. I like Irvin Yalom, and one of the things he really emphasizes is that installation of hope. And I think, mm. like, so so really, like, he installed some hope. I'm like, oh, okay. So, like, yeah, those things happen to me, but I can still have a good life and things yes. can still be good for me. Yes, and so I started working a variety of things. My first plan was to be a writer. Um, and so I did some writing. It was too confessionalist. It was too me working out my own stuff. It wasn't necessarily great for my own mental health. Sure. But eventually, as I was trying to get experiences for writing, I started working with people with disabilities. I started working mm. with people um, who had uh, special needs. And over the course of time... I'm like, you know, I really, really, really like this. Like I like to help people mm-hmm. and, but I need to do something that's actually going to be able to pay my bills. Cause sure. yep. in, in Kentucky at that time, I was a residential assistant making $6 an hour. Uh, Eek. yeah. So mm-hmm. I went to AmeriCorps first. Cool. Nice. And so I did the NCCC program. I got to travel all over the country and Amazing. do community service work, things like tutoring at inner city schools in Detroit and doing, you know, like a chainsaw, uh, well, fire mitigation work. But basically I was hiking with a chainsaw into like uh, the the mountains around Boulder and doing like, you mm. know, chainsawing down trees and then helping them get out. And then after that, I came back. I directed a group home for a little while, and then I, I went into my master's program for social work. And then straight from there to the Alexian Brothers Behavioral Health Hospital, where I ended up working in their partial IOP program for, I was hired right after my internship, so I did 10 years there. And you get to see everything, like, you know, working in a partial IOP program. And a lot of a lot of therapists don't even know those exist, but mm, you get to inpatient. see... Well, no, it's it's the um, in between. It's so partial oh, IOP, IOP in, is not. Yeah. It's intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization. Okay. So it's actually like they're there with you every day of the week, well, five days of the week, but then they go home. Interesting. And so yeah. so we um, we were kind of the buffer from people who were about to be hospitalized if they couldn't kind of get corrected. Sure, sure, sure. Or people who had just been hospitalized and they were really too sick to be totally off the off the grid yet, 
you know, but they couldn't be, uh, you can't remain hospitalized. And really hospitalization is not therapeutic typically. Nope. It's just about safety. Exactly. But we saw tremendous growth and like awesome yeah. changes, like consistently. I mean, I would see people Amazing. who um, were extremely depressed and anxious and traumatized go through these radical like like uh, life changes, do amazing things. Like it was wonderful. And so, but also it paid poorly comparatively and heavy. It's it's heavy, difficult work. You know, like the hospital would make record profits and they would throw a pizza party. Ugh, uh, yeah, but there was never a ben- bonus or anything, you know. Yeah. So, so I started a private practice two years. You know, like, as soon as I got my LCSW, I started my private practice. And I was just seeing a few people a week. And I was a generalist. You know, I was seeing a lot of people with depression, anxiety, whatever. I was I was kind of seeing what I knew as well. So... I knew a bit about, you know, disabilities and, and working with those things. So I was also seeing some folks with disabilities is it got into my uh, career though. I was, I was getting to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm working a lot at the hospital. I want to start growing my private practice. I was also a member of the kink community, a member of the poly community. And I, from the beginning, I had had patients who were in those communities who would say like, oh, you know what a munch is? Mm, oh, oh, yeah. you know, like, so you know that I'm not cheating on my husband because I'm dating my boyfriend. Mm. Okay. You know, and then they were referring their friends and stuff. So there was already word of mouth that was starting to grow. Yep. But I had heard kind of clearly from some folks at the hospital, like, you know, I mean, some people were very cool and awesome and some people were very clearly um, kink phobic, uh, you know, would, would people would come yep. in admitting to a consensual non-monogamous relationship and some therapists, well, they're actually cheating. And then, you know, you would push back, but also it was very clear. If you were a member of this group, well, you're never going to get a referral from them again. Jesus. Um, and so Ugh. I knew that if I came out, I would be losing referral sources that people would stop referring to me. But there came a point Ugh. where I'm like, fuck it. You know, I just yes. want to live authentically. I think it. I think that there's a need. I'm just going to advertise and market myself for the things that I actually know about. I'd also been yeah. reading books and going to conferences like the the Karis Conference and uh, a number of others over the years. And I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to put myself out there. And as yeah. soon as I did, I absolutely lost referral sources and my business exploded. Like I got, wow. you know, like so many more referrals than I could ever deal with. Uh, and then I just went more and more into full time until uh, I was completely full time and had way more people referrals than I could ever take and was referring out and helping my friends fill up their practices. I got in with the Chicago sex therapy community, um, with the kink and poly where uh, Chicago therapist community. I'm on that listserv. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> and uh, did talks and, and did those kinds of things. I helped friends fill up their practices, but I was I love it. just not wanting the extra work of running my own practice because it's, it's a, a lot, lot of work. It is a lot, yeah. And then, uh, you know, I'm married. My wife is like, hey, I think we we should have kids. And by the way, my clock is ticking, so give me a baby now or I will cut Mm. you. Um, And I'm (laughs) like, okay, give me a minute. And it's the same thing a lot of people who've been traumatized or had abuse early on. Like, it just took me a while to kind of (sighs) relax into it. Yes, breathe. Yeah. So I said, give me, it's a long time, but I'm like, give me two years because I think I can set everything up so that we'll be in a good place. 
because my fear was I'm a private practice solo practitioner. So if I go on vacation, if I take time off for paternity leave, there's no income. And I'm yeah, the, where's the money? I'm the primary uh, breadwinner. So so then I, I started yeah. building my practice and I had someone great, Carla Scherf, who's on our team, reached out to me around that time and was like, hey, I've heard so many great things about you. I've been wanting to work in, with this community. Can I sign up with you? And I'm like, I'm not ready yet. So it's going to be a bumpy couple months. I like get everything in place. And she's like, I'm okay with that. And so yeah, we just went and now we're up to 15 therapists. We've, we've got five interns right now. And then we've already accepted another three or four for the summer and fall. So what a life story too. And I mean, I'm thinking about all the way back from your childhood and going through that. And I mean, it sounds like an incredibly difficult time when the people that you love deeply weren't there to support you in the mm. way that you needed at that time mm. and having to go and find that stability with your teachers. I mean, that's just so difficult. And especially losing your grandma, you know, having to go from mm -hmm. your mom to your grandma, finding your stability there and then losing that at such a young age, mm. just so much instability. Yeah. Well, and this is, I mean – it's <laughs> it's a little wild um yeah. like but the kind of bookend to some of this is that you know we were having our first child very excited mm -hmm. lockdown yeah. happened literally like we found out that my wife is pregnant end of december end of february we're locked down basically oh my god and so it's just like uh you know things are already by by the time we're before we start to tell anyone we're in lockdown and so part of our two-year plan was like we had all these friends that had committed to come and stay with us. One of my my great buddies was like, hey, I'm going to come and stay with you for a month because my job's totally flexible. I'll stay with you guys the first month as kiddos here and help with like overnight diapers and feedings and stuff. Like put me in, coach. Such, I mean, and like an insanely generous offer. And then the pandemic hit and we couldn't do any of it. Like nobody could be around. Ooh. No one could be there. Yeah. So that was tough. At the month mark before my before my daughter was born, my mother dies suddenly. Um, she mm -hmm. has a heart attack in her sleep, and we still don't know if COVID was implicated. Like she'd had a cold, went to bed. Um, she had COPD and some other health issues, uh. and just had a heart attack in her sleep. Oh my god. Then two weeks after my daughter was born we get a call it's my uh about my father and obviously again oh, no. my father a lot of a lot of stuff there but he was in the hospital and they basically were asking me like we have to pull the plug we think <sighs> or we could do this this horrible surgery for him um because he uh. fell hit his head was you know unconscious for three days in by on his own and so there's just all this stuff that could happen but Oof. but we don't think he'll ever be himself like what do you want to do and so it's like yeah i mean i guess we're you know so i lost my father and so that oh was like God. like in the course Jason. of six weeks Jason. and i say this in part because it's fucking crazy but yes. also telling my because I was just hiring staff and bringing people on. And one of my, one of my very good friends, Sharon, who works for me said to me, like, she just said to me this to me recently, but she's like, you know, when you told me that your mother died, I felt so horrible for you. I would just been hired. And then your baby was born. I'm like, Oh my God, that's so great. And then you said your father died. And there was a little while where I was like, is this guy telling the truth? 
is this yeah. all made up? Like, it just can't be. Lot. This can't be real, can it? Yeah. And it's not like they even like they were living in different states, hadn't been around each other in years. It was just like a, a horrible coincidence. Timing, yeah. Yeah. So that was obviously awful. Ugh. You know, but I, I say that because you know dealing with the pandemic, and I think for a lot of people, you know, if you're a therapist who's been working for a while, you know before the pandemic was the Trump years. And so mm. you were dealing with people feeling insane and crazy and trapped for years before. And then the pandemic hit. And then also people like me like have real life shit going down during all oh, of this crazy time. Yeah. And so I think for everybody, Ugh. there is this sense of like, national i mean you know worldwide civilization level trauma that people just have sure, not had yes. a chance really to process yes i think it's going to be one of the great you know challenges of our age as mental health professional professionals is not only to weather the current storm but also to kind of like make some sense of it someday yes yes and then on top of that right us as professionals have the added level of your own personal life you know, you're treating all these people, helping all these people, but within your own personal right. life, you're having all of this pain and instability that you're having to process on top of trying to care for the other people that are in instability. Right. Which is super difficult and a lot to handle at once, especially it's, when you're yeah. trying to bring on a new child and maintain that relationship. It's just, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. My wife's comment was, it was like, I don't know how you're handling this this well, and yes. it freaks me out. <laughs> yes, yes. Which is fair. I mean, you know, I think part of it was like, yeah, I had something to focus on. Like, it was like, mm. yeah, I've got to keep myself moving because there's a little baby that needs a diaper change, and she doesn't, yeah. you know, she doesn't know about any of this other stuff. She just needs, she needs her bottle. So, like, get up and get going. But again, I also know I, some of this I definitely have dealt with, and I've certainly been talking about with friends and, like, processing mm. stuff. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But I also know that there's some of this that I'm not going to process until things are more chill. And then sure, it's going to be like, course. yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like it, when you're in that trauma and survival state, it's almost impossible to see that what you're in until you're in that moment when the dust settles, right? And right. then you're able to look back and see the fullness of what you were in. Because when you're in that survival state, you're just in a, using different aspects of your brain to get through what you need to get to through and i'm thinking about you know your wife making that comment of you're handling this so well and also when we look back at your childhood i mean you were going through significant traumas mm -hmm. on you know a normal basis and so you had to learn really quickly as a child like how can i deal with this level of massive instability in my family mm -hmm. life and still maintain myself and focus mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the things that I tell, because I obviously I deal a lot with people with with trauma. Um, that's one yeah. of my specialties, strangely. Um, yeah. But one of the, the things I tell people is that it does it does give you some superpowers frequently. Yes. Now, the superpowers aren't always worth it. Like if I had a magic wand, I'm like, do you want superpowers or, you know, but it's going to I'm going to have to like break your legs. Mm, I don't know. You know, but but if you had to get your legs broken anyway, well, getting some superpowers mm -hmm. wouldn't be a bad benefit. Yeah. You know, and so I think it's about part of when we really grapple with acceptance, it's also accepting like I am the person I am today. And in some ways, the reason why I have a very successful business and why my life is really great generally now 
is because of bullshit that went down when I was a kid or, you know, stuff that I've had to live through since. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, there's that term post-traumatic growth, right? And I mean, we know that in other aspects of our life, kind of like um, with weightlifting, right, or building muscles, it's that process of breaking down the muscle that allows you to build more. And so that in the same way, we're going through these traumas. And when we break down, we're typically have the, if we, you know, have the right environments and the right skills to come back with resilience actually become so much stronger from that experience. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I think uh, some some of what I do kind of falls into um, that narrative realm where it's like about what storylines are we telling ourselves about yes. our life? And I, I think that it's, you know, for me, a helpful narrative is to hold on to like that, yeah, shitty things can happen and there can still be growth and hope and things that come from that. And that's something that generally is very sustaining for me. I also do try to hold on to, and not every bad story has to have a happy ending you know like i think sometimes as therapists mm-hmm, we can be too mm-hmm. you know we can be too driven to put like but now here's how things are better because of what you just exactly. went through and it's like yes. no sometimes things just suck because of what you yeah. went through and it sucks and that's mm-hmm. you know that's real mm-hmm. yeah it's always the meaning of what you make out of that right i um recently finished a uh, man's search for meaning by victor frankel right fantastic and I mean- book yeah Exactly. And here's the Holocaust, right? Like how you don't look at someone from that and say, well, great. Now you're super strong. Love that that happened to you, right? That is, no, that is a horrible atrocity. And so at that point, then it's up to each individual that have experienced these significant, uh, horrible atrocities. What meaning do you choose to make out of that? Right. Like, like, you know, saying to someone, you know, sometimes God creates a Holocaust just to make you a better writer. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. Yes, horrible things happen all the time, and I'm, I'm thinking about that therapist that told you that you were never gonna get over the, you know, trauma of your life, right? And what narrative did that tell you as someone in that moment, you know, trying to grapple with, you're looking up to this person that's supposedly supposed to have the answers to healing, and they're telling you you're not gonna heal. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly that's what I heard, right? I heard things are hopeless, yeah. you're not going to heal, things are always going to feel shitty. Instead, I think I think of a, another way of phrasing that is something I actually do use sometimes, which is um, – because some of those people are like, when am I going to get over this? And it's like, well, that's not, that's not the right framework. Like this is part of your story now, mm. right? This is This is part of your story. And like, you know – Batman didn't get over his parents. Like his parents are always that. That's part of his story. His parents were killed, sure, right? That's fucking. Yep. That was rough. But that's not the end of the story. Like that's part of the story, and then the story keeps going. And then there's other things that happen. And then there's meaning that you make from that bad thing. And then there's the choices you make following that. So you know, it's a different. It's a. It's a. It's a different way of of framing it. It's not about mm-hmm. I'm going to conquer this pain and it will never you know, affect me again. It's of course it's affecting me. It's part of my story, but that, that effect doesn't have to just be awful. That effect could also give me strength, resiliency. I survived the terrible thing of nothing else. Like, Hey, I'm still here. Right. Right. Exactly. Accepting it and then moving through that. Right. And I mean, Mm -hmm. here you are having this difficult childhood and family dynamics that were so inherently unstable. And now you're beginning a family and having you know right. this toddler and being able to rework this narrative and potentially give that child maybe that stability that you always craved. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I and I think it's a weird vibe when you have a kid and you've gone through a spicy childhood. Yeah. I think there is, a, you know, like one of the things that I hear from patients and I've experienced it myself, especially in the very, very early days, seeing like, oh, yeah, like this was something I never got. And this is just going to be like, so, of course, this is the way the world works for her. You know, like, oh, yeah, this is something that I was never able to experience, but she's going to have that as a default. And I think there can be some jealousy that comes up from that. Ooh, um, yeah. But also, like, I think, I think the at least the way for me it crystallized, it was, I don't really feel that anymore. Um, I mean, I might feel it when she gets to college and can have every toy that I wanted and she, I can never have or whatever. Sure, sure. But I really think for me, it's ultimately about, you know, this kind of belief that you can create the life that you always wanted. And I can still be a part of that in life and experience that life, right? So I get to have you know, I'm seeing it through the parents' eyes, but that the parents' eyes are pretty good. Like I get to mm. see this really happy, funny, weird kid do cool stuff yeah. and be a part of that. And that's, that's mm -hmm. actually kind of wonderful. And then I can, I can kind of have this recreation in a way that's like really great. And it's, you know, it's ultimately about her and her life. And it's not just about me re, you know, fulfilling all my stuff with her, you know. But it is. Life. It is. It yeah. is your life and your journey and your meaning to make out of this situation, right? And like, this is your story. This is your Batman story. Mm -hmm. This is the meaning that you're making through the family and the life that you're creating for her. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think it's both, right? Like, it's it's yeah. part. It's the story that that me and her are telling together. Mm, yeah. Yes, and I love that. I mean, and that's a the tricky piece about parenting, right? Is that sometimes parents then want so much so to have their narrative lived throughout their children, yeah. so, so that they don't allow them to live their own life. So I love that you're very cognizant of that, right? Like yeah. so much so that this is my life, but it's also your journey. And so if you take this a completely different way, that's great, and that's your life to live. And I'm excited for you. Yeah, and I think that is I think that is ultimately the major failing of a lot of the adults. Not my grandmother. Um, my grandmother had a different sort of failing. Like my grandmother's failing might have been, uh, although not completely for sure, but but to a part where she went a little wrong was sometimes she made it too much about like the kid and not enough about her. I think mm -hmm. that um, a lot of the other adults were making it just like all about them, and you know it was very much that culture that 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 kind of um, you know early 80s to mid 80s country culture which still certainly exists of kids are supposed to be obedient kids are supposed to do what their parents tell them kids are supposed to believe what their parents want them to believe and when none of those things are actually true which they're they're just not right. then suddenly it's well the kid is being bad and naughty mm. and must be punished and that's the way you yeah. get kids to do the right thing is you punish them until they're they're correct um, which is just not, again, how the world works. It's a great recipe nope. to alienate your kids and push people away. Yep. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And the, I mean, it's difficult because we know that's always done out of love for the most part, right? Or what was mirrored to them in their childhood. Yeah. They think it's what they're supposed to do, I think. At least a lot of the people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So then it's like, oh, you have empathy for them knowing that they're just trying to do their best, but also at the same time knowing that that is not the most effective way to parent or to be in any relationship, right? Yeah. And then a lot of times it created real harm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. can certainly look at cousins and 
you know, other people in my life who I saw being raised in that way and, you know, mm. who were, who had scars. Like I certainly have yeah. mine. Like, yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think the people who were doing it out of maybe love mixed with ignorance rather than like, you know, the people that were malevolent or, you know, kind of awful. I think there's definitely a different vibe there. Right. Yeah. The generational trauma that can just slew through and it, you know, at what point do you become the person to change that, to set yourself on a different trajectory so that your daughter doesn't enact those same patterns, right? Yep. Yeah. Could you tell me more about the scars that you feel like maybe those have left on you from that level of parenting that maybe now you're wrestling with as a parent finding, you know, yeah, your daughter growing up and how you're kind of working through those things that might still because you use the word scars, right? Still present. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm thinking, you know, like I think there was a lot growing up that was like the certainly after my grandmother died and I went to live with my mother again, like the and my grandfather died a few years after that. So it was, you know, uh, they were uh, they were both gone by the time I was like 14. The Wow. I think the energy was very much you're kind of on your own. Like you mm. like it's it's this weird mix of you're supposed to be loyal to the family, but the family doesn't really owe you much. And so, you know, if you're being critical, particularly if you're telling secrets outside of the family, you know, again, a lot of drug use, a lot of substance use stuff that's a very, very bad thing. If you're talking to a therapist, that's a very bad thing. And you, so you should really be self-sufficient, keep your shit like to yourself, but obviously be here for me if I need you. You know, that was kind of mm. the vibe sometimes. Now I will say to my to my mother's credit, I do think that she changed um, as she aged. And I think that you know, I think that she kind of realized that she had messed things up and she didn't really ask much of me. You know, we, we did not have a close relationship. We talked every, you know, a few times a year, really. But I do think there was regret for sure on her part. I think that the result of that, though, like I sometimes, so I have a, a I'll give you an example. So I have a chronic illness. Like I have a um, a rare migraine disorder it causes like all kinds of weird things, paralysis, the world goes wonky, tough, brain tough. foggy stuff sometimes. Yeah. Um, it's like a daily chronic uh, migraine. So mm. with my partner, we generally talk pretty well. And I think we've both had our own things that we've really worked on. For mm-hmm. me, one of the bigger things is actually trying to say like when I'm when I'm hurt or when I'm not feeling well or, you know, mm. to a to a way that feels clear. So there was a day where I was having the onset of one of my really terrible, bad migraines and I come home and I'm like, yeah, I'm not feeling great. And for me, not feeling great. Well, my, my instinct is that's going to be perceived as way too much. Like that's going to be perceived as holy shit. You're about to die. Go, you know, go lay down. My wife not being insane hears that and goes like, oh, so you're feeling a little bit. Okay. Well, I'm cooking dinner. Could you just like hang out with me while I'm cooking dinner? Thinking that that's a mild request on a big thing. I'm literally thinking I might fall over, but Mm. you're telling me that it's so important to you that you're feeling, you must be feeling so fragile in some way that if I don't stay here, you're going to be really, uh, maybe you'll be mad or upset or not feeling. So I'm like forcing myself to stand up and stay near where she's cooking 
and the world is like spinning and like I'm feeling like, you know, all of this, this stuff coming up until eventually like, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta lay down. And she's like, well, yeah, why don't you lay down? Like, and then I'm by that, but by that time I like fall over. Right. I can't get to the right. And she's like, Oh my God, why did you let it go so long? And I'm like, well, I told you. And you said that you needed me. And I'm like, she's like, wait, why did you tell, what did you think you told me? I'm like, well, I said that I wasn't feeling well. She's like, that doesn't mean I'm about to collapse, asshole. Like, I don't, that's not yeah. what, like, that's not what I heard. Like, I heard that you just were feeling a little under the weather. I'm like, uh, oh yeah. Okay. All right. So, so it's really, especially when it's one of those things, it's like, okay, I, I really, really have to put this through the filter a couple times to make it louder and louder than what feels right to me for it to be audible. Right. Yeah, and I, I love that what feels right to me because that did feel right to you and we're going to honor that, that that felt like the right level of expression. But then taking that step back to look at that objectively and is and ask ourselves, was that the right way to handle that? Even right. though it felt right, there might be a new way to direct ourselves. And I think that makes a lot of sense coming from you know a family structure that was avoidant about interdependence on one another, Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So then you're constantly saying, I need to protect myself. You know, the people in my families are doing protecting themselves. I need to do this all inside, especially what you said about therapy and talking to other people, not mm-hmm. being a thing. So then all of your healing was individualistic rather than interconnected on people around you. So now you're creating this new family structure, new dynamics. And here you have this moment where communication is failing, both of you that are wanting to connect so deeply, but just failing at that moment. And how do we learn to do that better? Yeah. And, and, and I should say too, like I have done several courses of therapy and I'm in therapy now. I think therapy is amazing, obviously, but, but also it's still like, You know, like it's exactly. it's hard for that to like, you know, I, I am very my instinct is to be self-sufficient, take care of my shit, mm. survive, get through. But actually, paradoxically, I am I did learn very much how to build connection with other people because that was also a survival strategy. It's like I need mm. friends. I need people that because I couldn't go to my family. So. So, you know, if if I was going to get through, I kind of had to have other people in my life that I could reach out to and connect with. And Definitely, yeah. So then you still got that interdependence from other people that maybe were a little bit more stable at that time to give you healthy relationships. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's so fascinating because all of this stuff – even when we're in therapy and, you know, to that one therapist point of you're never going to get over this, it does shape us. Yeah. Yeah. And we can't get away from that, yeah. right? Like that's just a really thick reality. Yeah. And again, I mean, good ways, bad ways, right? Like I've exactly. been someone who is great in emergencies. I've been yep. I've been the person that can go into a really difficult situation and figure out a solution and get out of it my whole life. And so, and there's times where that has absolutely been the world's biggest boon. Like it is, it is kind of a superpower. And then there's also like, you know, things are, everything is going great and there's no stress. And I'm just like, exactly. You know, very like, what do I do? (laughs) What do I do now when I'm not in that survival state? Exactly. And I mean, that's, 
the, in my opinion, the duality and the complexity of life, right? It's never this, this or that. It's this gray in between mm-hmm. of like, yes, there's mess and there is beauty and there is all of that here. I think exactly what you said right. earlier, sometimes as psychologists, we're kind of like pushing for this positive narrative always. And in doing so, we leave out the space to talk about the negative, tough stuff that really is still present. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think with, with clients, so, um, I do a lot of um, DBT, a lot of ACT, a lot of third wave kind of stuff. With clients, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes that clinicians can make, and it's mostly one of two versions of clinicians, either people that are very poorly trained in their younger or people that really don't want to do the job and I think are just kind of like have fallen into maybe the wrong career path. Um, the people who are who are so invested in that neutral therapeutic mask, it's like I can show my patient nothing, I can give them nothing. I'm going to sit here as if I am a perfect human, and to the point where even maybe if they have, if they notice me being weird, I'm going to be like, oh, what's wrong with you that you thought there was something Ooh. wrong with me? Ooh. Let's let's Ooh. talk about your your problems because I, I have yeah. none. That you've yeah. got – what the fuck is wrong with you that you think there's something wrong with me, you know, as opposed to like we're all human beings. Now, we're we're exactly. experts. We're, we have a lot of training that, that our clients are not going to – or even if they have that training, it's not their brain, right? Or it is their right. brain we're talking about, and so they need an outside observer to notice things and help them with stuff. But we're all human. We're all messy. We all, yes. you know, fart times when we don't really want to fart and sometimes make weird mistakes and yes you know i think if you own all of that and can be that authentic self in the session that's when people trust you that's when they're willing to do the work you know if you're if you're if you can be honest with people about what you know and what you don't know if you can be honest with people about like you know like the tough stuff then they'll also believe you when you say like and there's hope right exactly exactly and that's part of what i hope you know, that this podcast does is like lift a mirror up. I'm not trying to be, you know, a psychologist or something that has all the answers. I'm just trying to show up as a human that is, you know, navigating these things. And Mm -hmm. when I talk to people and I don't have the answers and talk about my failings and these sort of things, it's obviously so different, right? Because there's such so much more um, disclosure here on this podcast than maybe in a therapeutic setting. But I, I, God, I hope that anyone looking in can see like, oh, she's just a human. yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, I go by like the behavioral tech folks, the people that do like the DBT trainings, uh, Marshall Lanahan's group, they do, um, they do a training on those types of disclosures. And the, the best advice I've heard from that was be, you know, talk about anything that you you're okay talking about. So if something mm-hmm. is not a an absolutely raw open wound, then then talk about it. Like if something is that for you, you should probably avoid it because you're not in a place to be able to maintain those boundaries. And so the example someone had given was that they had been through a divorce. Um, they had a, their head on straight around it. They knew where it, what was going on. It was okay. So like with couples that were talking about like, I don't know, we might get divorced. That's so scary. It's like, yeah, I've been through that. It is scary, but also you do survive. So if you want to stay in a relationship, stay because you want to, not because you feel so afraid of the of this outcome. The other thing they, they mentioned though was that they had a um, 
you know, a brother who ha- was very ill and was dying and they're like, sure. that's way too raw. I couldn't go into, into that, of course. you know? And so I think like knowing right. that about yourself, like all of the things I've talked about in the podcast today, you know, it's all stuff that I, I've, I've worked through and had experience kind of talking about. And so it's, it's yep. safe for me to go there. Yep, exactly. Because then when you're talking about it, it's not like you're, it's not therapy at that point. You are sharing your story, not processing it. I mean, there might be with any conversation, we're always processing things, sure, right? Sure, but sure. like here in this space, it's, it's, it's different. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about when you're with a client rather than starting to process with them your own trauma. You can just tell them a little bit of your lived experience right. that might allow them to be able to be present in that room together, which is such a different dynamic. And part of why I love Yalom's work, right? Right? Yeah. He's always talking about like how do you bring yourself and your true human nature into the room? Absolutely. Yeah, because these relationships I think are so, you know, the therapeutic one being such a model for how we could have all of our relationships mm-hmm. of holding space, caring, listening to the world of another person. Frequently, I mean, that's such a hard task that even myself included, I don't always have that space to do that in all the relationships that I have mm-hmm. in my life, right? Well, and, and you know, whenever they do the research about what's the most important factors in therapy, rapport, always number yep. one yep. by a mile, doesn't matter what types of interventions you're doing, doesn't matter whatever else, the number one indicator is rapport. The other stuff I, th- I think does matter. But number one, you have to have that relationship. The person has to think that you care. They have to th- feel that they're vibing with you. And, you know, yes. that's that's the key. So Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, that key of the relationships. And I think that's why for me, I'm so fascinated to study these things. Like how do we maintain relationships, especially within like, you know, a polydynamic, yeah. having multiple, you know, how do you maintain them with the health and integrity that, you know, sometimes is so difficult to spread out your energy across people? Yeah. And I think that is, you know, is we're talking about, you know, things that the the profession needs, like, you know, when you, when you look at the numbers and this is like, you know, these are not, uh, even like the, the freshest numbers. And we know the trend line has been very much towards, towards more and more people identifying, you know, there's 20% of people who will say at some point in their life, they're dating more than one person. They are, in maybe more than one relationship. And some people call it different things. Oh, that's just when we were dating and I was dating a couple people and trying to figure out who your Mima was going to be or whatever the thing was. Right. But, but people go through this and then there's also so, so, so many people like when I came out about my specialties, there were people that I had worked with at that hospital for years who kind of quietly on the side was like, you know, I have an arrangement with my partner. Like we can every once in a while kind of date someone. And it's like, yeah, but it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. It's in the world. I do so many trainings for therapists who are working with these populations. And one of the things that I always start with is this is not about like, oh, I might work with this population someday. You are working with these populations. Like, you know, if you look at kink, the majority of, I think the second, mo- the number one most popular fantasy, Justin LaMiller did a great book, Tell Me What You Want where they did a 4,000 people survey, number one most popular uh, fantasies, group sex, you know, orgies, that kind of thing. Typically it was a threesome with the, the, the sexes that you most enjoy. Uh, so that was the number one most, most popular. The number two most popular fantasies were all about power and control, BDSM stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When you look at behaviors, 
uh, like, hey, do you like your hair pulled? Do you like to be, have you ever been bitten erotically? Have you ever been, you know, like frequently there's for the hair pulling, that's a majority of people. Like, you know, like there's a lot of people who like those kinds of things in sex. So you're working with these populations now. Maybe they're not going to the sex club every Saturday, but they're coming in. The question is, do they trust you enough? Have you made it inviting enough environment for them to be able to disclose that kind of information if they need to? Exactly, exactly. Do they feel safe enough to talk about it? And I remember even in my own therapy, I was so nervous to talk about sex within my own therapy, right? It's just, it it felt not not even on my therapist's like problem with her. I just mm-hmm. was like, is this a place where I can actually talk about these things? Yeah. And I think a lot of that's yeah, societal conditioning that ooh, taboo, you don't talk about this sort of stuff, right? But mm-hmm. like that is exactly the kind of space that you want to talk about these things, a private container to be able to explore all of it, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the things I'll start off trainings or or my class, I teach a class at University of Chicago on this. One of the things I'll start off my class with is okay, have you ever lied to a doctor about things that are going on with you because you didn't know if your doctor would get it or you just didn't want to get into it? Yeah. Every hand goes up. Like it is, you know, people, people are people. These things are going on. It's can we ask? And one of my, one of my absolute favorite examples around this is I had, um, after I'd left the hospital and I was full in private practice, I had a referral and they were like, so Jason, I want you to know this isn't kind of one of your other types of patients because I know you're working with these like kinky folks, whatever. It's not like those people. This is an evangelical person. They're just coming and they just have bipolar. I know you're great with bipolar. Could you just like help? I'm like, sure, sure. And so I'm working with them. And then two months in, they're like, you know, I was Googling your name. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And I have a secret. And I'm like, okay. But I don't think I can tell anyone. I don't know that I can tell you. And I'm like... Well, here's the thing. You don't have to tell me. Why don't we, though, that you brought it up. You brought it up for some reason. Mm-hmm. You told me, hey, I have a secret, but I don't know if I can tell you. That means you're thinking about telling me. Why don't we do this? We'll just check in every two weeks. Is that okay? We'll check in every every two times we're going to meet. I'll just check in to see if you're up for telling me. And so I just put an alert on my phone on their on their appointments. I just say, like, hey, are you ready yet? Oh, I don't think I'm ready yet. Okay, great. And we would just go into the session. It took them two months Wow. And then they're like, I think I am. I'm like, okay, I'm, uh, my partner and I, we're exhibitionists, but we don't, we we're so, we're so turned on by it. It's so hot for us, but we, we've been getting in trouble because we're leaving, like, you know, we're having sex in our living room with the blinds open. It's a small street. People walk by and see us. Our neighbors have been getting mad. Like, you know, um, we were doing some stuff in an alleyway and we almost got busted by the cops you know, like, uh, I don't know like what to do. I'm like, well, you know, there's clubs for this, right? What? Yeah. Well, but I'm an evangelical. I'm like, yeah, there's other evangelicals that go to clubs like this. It's a way not to get arrested, but you can still Mm. be really turned on by all the people watching you. Exactly, exactly. And for you to provide that space to give that unconditional positive regard right to something that your client felt so much shame about that they were worried to tell you. Oh my God, that is the therapeutic power there, right? Here you're another human. I see you fully in this and it's more than okay. It's normal and it's celebrated in many spaces. Right. Yeah. And then part of, as we looked at the pattern, part of the time, because this person had been admitted to the hospital, part of that was that they had been 
called out by one of their neighbors, had been intensely shamed about it, and disclosed none of that upon like going into the hospital. None mm. of it was too shameful. It was too too secret. Too hard. Yeah. And so you yeah. know, if you can't actually address the problems, then this was just going to keep happening. And they they had said it had been happening for years, where they would explore it more and more. They would do something. They would get caught or feel ashamed or whatever and then it would be a downward spiral for both of them and then eventually it would start getting hot again and hotter and hotter and hotter and then they would do it and then they would get in trouble and so it's like you just need some education about consent and doing these things in a way that people can consent to doing it and yeah exactly exactly and they're so lucky to have you in the space to provide that for them that lack of judgment and in fact encouragement yeah. of these aspects of themselves that frequently society is often you know just judging and pushing so much shame on it's it's horrible right you know people that are that are really depressed and some well actually um, a really, really fun example, uh, I had a patient who was kinky who was also trying to apply for jobs and had been feeling down because like that wasn't going so well and they had such a hard time advocating for themselves. And so we were talking about what could we do to make that easier and we were trying to think of like, okay, how, when is the time in your life where you feel powerful? And this person was a switch. And she's like, well, I feel really powerful and seen sometimes. Like, I, I'm just like the shit and like everybody should know it. I'm like, okay, that's what we want you to have in your job interviews. You probably don't want to walk in and like flog the interviewer. Sure. That might be rough. Uh, that might get noted yeah. somewhere. But yeah, maybe. what if we pulled a little bit of that energy in? Like if you had a, an imaginary exactly. dial going from zero to 10, maybe 10 is when you're like going crazy with your flogger. What if we had a three? Yeah. Right now you're at a zero. What if we had a three? Like, oh, okay. Yes. And I'm like, is there something that would help you keep that energy going? And they're like, something you could have, like a transactional object or something, you know, that you could have with you. And so she's like, well, actually, you know, when I when I'm doing a scene, if I'm feeling more dominant, I'm typically wearing like leather and boots. And I'm like, so the leather might be a lot, but the boots. Could we do the boots? And she's like, oh yeah, the boots look really nice. I could make those work with the. Uh, with like a dress suit or something. I'm like, awesome. And so sure enough, she's like, I, I went into my interview and I've never sold myself so well. Hell yeah. Amazing. And I feel like part of that is normalizing and embracing the different aspects of ourselves, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. that person feeling so powerful in a scene with partners, right? And recognizing that that is an aspect of myself that I don't have to hide away from Absolutely. in other areas of society. Yeah. Yes, we're not going to start having sex in the interview, but that aspect of myself can still show up in different aspects of my life with boundaries. Well, and I think being powerful can be a big taboo for some people, right? Yes. Like, yep, especially women. Especially, especially women, especially femme, femme folk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's also, I think, really compassionate people are sometimes very afraid of the power, especially if they're compassionate and also say sadistic, that can, they can be very afraid of, of hurting others. And then people way, way overcorrect. And so they make themselves like a total pushover who everybody uses as a doormat because in their mind, it's safer for me to do that because at least I know I'm not hurting people. But then that also takes potentially 
uh, a powerful, compassionate force for good from the world, right? It robs Mm -hmm. not only that person of a better life, but it robs the world of this great influence. And so it is sometimes like, hey, what if we can tap into more of who you've allowed yourself to be in a scene? What if we can tap more into that energy and give yourself like, here's the thing. You've been running around as a compassionate person who is also sadistic your whole life. How many people have you murdered? How many, you know, like when you were cut off in traffic, did you ram the person and push them off the road? No, because you're also, you you have a conscience, you have a code of ethics that you're living by. You can trust in that more. Like, you know, you should certainly be aware that you can do harm. That's absolutely a thing. But we shouldn't be paralyzed because we can do harm. We should still act and know that there will be harm that's done just by you existing. Exactly. It's it's inevitable, right? Yeah. And then I'm just – I'm hearing the story of the embrace of your authenticity allowing so much more space for you to take up yes, and be your whole self. Right. And right – and like, I mean here's your whole journey in that um, one – IOP, I believe you said, where you're feeling really restricted in the ways that you can show up as who you are, right? right? And being able to step out of that to create your own private practice. And now this whole practice that's built up completely all on authenticity, showing up as your full self and the way that you're able to help people now with that space to say, yeah, I I have these kinky desires and I'm a clinician. This is great. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think it's you know, it is something that patients really respond to and I think is a yeah. is kind of a treatment orientation. It it just works really well. Like I think if you're if you're trying to help people connect with themselves and really really kind of that, that parts that maybe been neglected, can we access those? Can we also look at just being very pragmatic and very functional a lot of times? It's like you know, like what's going to work better for you here? Is it going to be sitting around being anxious and paralyzed or is it going to be that you walked in the room and you tried something new? Let's try some, let's experiment. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure so many people have benefited from your energy, your authenticity and the way that you show up. I can feel it here with me that you're just speaking from the heart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, like, I think that's just easiest, you know, like I think yes, it's, it's, I agree. it is, it is hard initially to get, to find your voice and to do that work, to be, mm. to be real. And you have to keep doing that introspective piece about like, who am I really? And what's really going on? How do I think about things? But then the benefit is that things like this, it's like, yeah, you just, you say you the truth. Up. Yeah. You, you show up, you say the truth and then it's like, it's easy. Yeah. 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 This is how I've been taking my practicum interviews. I'm like, I just show up. This is what I believe. Here we are. Love me or hate me. You know, that's the right way to do it because you don't want to be in the practice that's going to hate you. Like I've had people who've gotten in this prestigious practice that's actually a terrible fit because their values are really off or whatever. Mm Hmm. Exactly. Yes. Bringing in your authenticity, I feel like is always the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like there's anything before this conversation that you really wanted to talk about in this space that maybe we didn't get to? Otherwise, I can kind of go to a closing question. No, I mean, I think I think um, we've really covered most things. I will just say, I know we, we were talking about, and I'm not sure if everything we were talking about before will be in the podcast or not. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the hiring thing. Like, we are hiring. We are looking for more. We're building our team. Um we do have a bit of a world domination model. 
no, I mean, honestly, it's it's based off of something. When I was at the hospital, I heard said a lot, which is if you're not growing, you're shrinking. And so the idea is, can we have a sustainable model of growth? This year, we're hiring some clinical supervisor and positions, and we're also going to be adding on to our team. And then we're we're going to be thinking about growing, adding on other specialties, other types of work that people are doing. Um, and well, I should probably save everything else about that plan for when it's actually coming closer. But sure, but sure, definitely sure. we have plans for growth, and we're looking for therapists. So if you're a person, uh, if you're a queer uh, person, if you're a person of color, especially, we encourage you to please apply. And uh, we absolutely think we have an awesome, weird, fun, quirky team. Uh, Hell yeah. It's a great place to work. Hell yeah. Save a spot for me in three years. When there we I get go. Out. <laughs> yeah. Please apply. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. One of the last questions I do ask everyone on the podcast yep. is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Oh. One Take your time. I got my tea. There we go. One thing that I wish more people knew was more normal. I mean, you know, really, I think a big thing in its uh, The Come As You Are book, uh, Emily oh, Nagaski yeah. talks about the fact, and, and I'm paraphrasing here from memory, so it might be a little off, but basically, you know, like the the breadth of human sexuality is very wide. And so everybody's kind of weird and weird is normal. Like that is the biggest thing. So many, so many, so many people are worried about being normal. And I think embedded in that is a fear of being less than or a fear of being too much. Yes. yes. Or a fear of, you know, again, of being just like broken in some way. And the reality is that sex is just weird and it's okay to be weird. Like some people are happy never ever having sex again. Some people are happy wanting sex like five times a day. Like, some people want sex with, you know, a cast of thousands and some people want to be with one person the rest of their life. Uh, it's all of those are awesome. All of those are great. You know, it's the negotiation is just about bringing your desires into the world in a way that is functional and makes sense. But but most of the time, that's not a moral issue that you have the desires like the the application of those desires absolutely can get into moral things and we want to make sure people are consenting and aware and we're exactly. not doing sure we're yep. not doing harm but but yeah no i think that like yeah that weird fantasy you have is probably not truly that weird or maybe it is that weird and that's fucking fine great yeah yeah exactly i mean we that's one of the biggest things I feel like we're growing towards as a society, I hope, is more space for the diversity, right? That person, you know, the asexual community doesn't want to have sex at all to the person exactly like you said, five times a day, to the exhibitionist, to the person that wants one person for their whole life. We have space for all of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I was reading uh, Sex for One by Betty Dotson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I love that book. Um, I just like raced through that and she was talking about the same thing about fantasies and how fantasies can be as quote unquote wrong as you want. You know, these are fantasies in your head. Mm -hmm. And I love that you put in that distinction of actually acting on them might have a different thing that we need to talk about mm -hmm. the, you know, consents and the protection of other individuals and what you're doing there. Right. But your fantasies, let them let them go yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it is people's attempts to suppress the fantasies that makes them so intense. 
yeah. I mean, sometimes if you just like let yourself go and then talking things through with your partner, you know, like thinking about how you can do things ethically, but also lots of people have lots of weird fantasies. It's fine. Exactly. Exactly. I love that you brought that up and are normalizing that or whatever the hell normal means, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I have been a therapist for 17, 16, 17 years now. Damn. I yeah. have literally worked with thousands of people. I mean, we used to go through, you know, there would be 60 people, 70 people at the, at the program sometimes in a week. And the reality is that everybody is fucking weird. And we're all just living our stories and trying to figure out, like, you know, how best to get through life. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Be kind to each other. Be kind to yourself, you know, and mm. and do the best you can. Mm. Yes, yes. So much wisdom there in that 17 years and your own journey that you shared today. I really appreciate all the vulnerability and rawness and authenticity that you brought here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, this was a fun. Uh, this was a fun interview. It was great talking to you today. And yeah, good times. Yeah. Just thinking, like I mentioned, that we're hiring, but then people exactly. don't know yeah, where, where to go, go or what to do. Call to action. Call to action. So besttherapies.org. So b e s t t h e r a p i e s dot org or o r g. Um, that's going to have information about our practice, our team, what we do. Um, you can absolutely contact us through that. Um, you can also email us if you want to email inquiries about a job or just a resume or whatever. Team, T-E-A-M, at besttherapies.org. Um, that totally works. And obviously, we are a growing therapy practice. So if you are a uh, person dealing with depression, bipolar, we do harm reduction substance uh, abuse work. We do health at any size work. You know, a lot of us are queer, and if they're not queer, they're certainly queer allied. Um, A lot of us are kinky or poly, and if they're not kinky or poly, they're kinky or poly allied. Please check out our website. There's lots of great therapists, um, and we do have openings again as we're as we're actively hiring right now. Um, I know a lot of our a lot of our friend practices and referral sources are kind of full at the moment, so. so yeah, I mean, if you if you're looking for a, a practice where people are going to be authentic and help you deal with uh, the difficult things in life, check us out. There it is. Hell yeah! I'm excited to see how you grow in the next coming years. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. I'm very excited. I think we've got some really uh, cool plans for the future. So. Hell yeah. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.